what if you find Joshua chapter 2 and uh, I'm going to read the, uh, the whole chapter then Joshua son of Nun secretly sent two spies from Shittim go look over the land he said especially Jericho so they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there the king of Jericho was told look some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land so the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them she said yes the men came to me but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. The men said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless, when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you led us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head we will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, 
we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. So what we've got here is that Joshua and the people, they're on the other side of the Jordan, all right, and they've got to cross the Jordan and go in and take the land. And we've seen all the symbolism that the inhabitants of Canaan represent the principalities and powers and spiritual warfare, etc., etc. And uh, But when they do that, they know full well that the first battle that they're going to face will be Jericho, which was right kind of, you know, that would be the first fortified city that they were going to, to come to. And uh, so for that reason, a little reconnoiter is in order. And so Joshua sends over the two spies to spy out the land and to go and have a look at Jericho and to uh, see what the position actually is. And um, we're going to see here um, a little bit about you know, the Lord increasing the morale of his people. Uh, morale is important in any army. If, if you're going into battle, uh, you need a good morale. You need. I mean, people may be frightened, they may be nervous and scared. That's fine. But you you need an army to be marching together and everyone giving their best, you know, and having a good morale. And in fact, under the law of Moses, uh, the Israeli army had a rule that before a battle, if there was anyone who was like so faint-hearted that they were quivering at the knees and kind of, oh, we're going to die, and oh dear, this is going to be dreadful. Anyone like that, they sent them home. So that anyone who's a complete wreck, just whose fear had completely overcome them, anyone who might spread pessimism and bad morale, was actually sent home. They didn't have to fight in the battle. And, uh, you know, and of course this was to help increase the morale of all the people. I mean, the last thing you need in spiritual warfare, believe you me, is unbelief and pessimism and negativism. All that is from the devil anyway. You know, I mean, if we go into spiritual warfare full of that, well, I mean, how are we going to, you know, sort of like, as it were, see, see the victory God's given us over Satan when we're actually doing his work? I mean, it just doesn't gel, does it? And so, you know, people like that in the Israeli army, they were actually sent home uh, before the battle. And, um, but, but what is, is, is so fascinating here and so good is that these spies, as they get into Jericho and they find Rahab and she shelters them and we'll be back to Rahab um, a bit later in more detail. But um, what they discover when they get over there is that the inhabitants of Canaan were already aware that they were beaten. What the spies discover 
it, Rahab tells them that all of us in the land, our, our hearts melted with fear when you cross the Red Sea. And what they discover is that the enemy is actually more frightened of them than they ever were of the enemy all the years that they're going through the wilderness. So the spies getting into the land, they find out that the morale of the Canaanites is dreadful because the Canaanites know that Israel is going to beat them because God is with Israel. So they find out that the Canaanites are already terrified of them as God's people. And that tells us, as indeed the New Testament confirms, that the truth is that Satan and demons are far more frightened of us as God's people than we are sometimes of them. I mean, if there really is one thing you shouldn't be regarding Satan and evil spirits, it's frightened. <laughs> I mean, there is just no reason to ever be frightened of Satan and evil spirits. The truth of the matter is that they are terrified of us because they know that God is with us. And that morale amongst the principalities and powers is actually very, very low indeed. Because Satan and the demons are fighting from the vantage point that they know that they've lost the war. I mean, they kid themselves, they deceive themselves, of course they do. You know, I mean, um, you know, sort of like in, in, in the final battle, Armageddon, and, you know, Satan is convinced that he can destroy Jesus. But he knows really he can't. And that Satan and the evil spirits, they are terrified of us. But it's, it's even more than that. Because this sending of the spies to spy out the land that we're seeing here, this is the second time round. When uh, Moses first got them out of Egypt, it wasn't that long after they'd been in the wilderness, only a year or so, that uh, they were ready to go into the land and they sent spies in then. And of course the people, they, you know, the spies came back and only two of them gave a good report and they came back, oh, we can't do it. And all the people said, oh, we can't do it. And so because of that unbelief, they just roamed for another uh, 38 odd years in the wilderness. Uh, you know, sort of like total unbelief, all right. So that first time round, the spies went in, but out of 12 spies, only two, Joshua and Caleb, came back saying, we can, you know, take the land. We can take the land. And um, so that first time, they didn't, you know. This time, they're going to, but that time, they didn't. So the difference here is that we're on a second time round. The spies have been sent out to spy the land out 38 years earlier. They came back, and the majority of them, well, no, we can't do it. So Israel didn't go in. Absolute defeat. This is second time round, 38 years later, the people are going to go in. Victory. So second time round, defeat first time round, this time round it's going to be victory. But what is so interesting here is that Rahab tells them that Jericho um, and the whole of Canaan had been absolutely terrified of Israel since the crossing of the Red Sea 40 years earlier. Now, can you see the point here? The Canaanites were as frightened 
of unbelieving and faithless Israel the first time round, as they were now of a victorious and believing Israel. So even when Israel the first time round was saying, oh no, we can't go into the land and oh, they're too big for us, and Israel was frightened of the enemy, all right, and eventually they, they retreated back into the wilderness. But even at that point, the Canaanites have been terrified of them ever since. And of course the reason for that is that it was only ever a matter of time. Although all those years earlier Israel was in defeat, it was only a matter of time that Israel was going to come to victory. And so the enemy, the Canaanites, were as frightened. They, had, they weren't just getting frightened now. I mean, the story wasn't, oh, well, yes, we were a bit nervous 40 years ago and we, we knew that you were coming to attack us, but then you bottled it and you fled. And then we knew we were okay. And of course, since then it's been great, but now we're getting frightened. That wasn't the story at all. Rahab said that they'd all been terrified and their hearts had been melting with fear the whole time. So the enemy was as frightened of defeated Israel as it was now of victorious Israel. And the reason was the Canaanites knew in their hearts it was only ever a matter of time. And what this tells us is this. It's the same with Satan and believers who are in defeat. Maybe even doing a bit of backsliding. Satan is terrified of believers simply because Jesus is with them. And at the moment, you may feel that you're in defeat. All of us are in defeat somewhere. Praise God, we can be in victory elsewhere, but all of us are in defeat somewhere. But maybe, maybe you're feeling, well, at the moment, for my Christian life, I feel in defeat. I don't feel in victory at all. I seem to be all defeat. Well, okay, that's the way it is. Let me tell you, Satan is as terrified of you as he is of any other believers who are at the moment are in victory. And the reason is this. You're in defeat at the moment. Okay, fine. You're, you're giving that to the Lord. You're looking to the Lord. It's only a matter of time you're going to be in victory. And Satan knows that. So Satan knows that if you're in defeat, his, his kind of safety from you is only temporary. The Lord will have the victory in you. And you need to understand that. Because part of, part of when we feel in defeat, Satan's in there with the old deception. You know, kind of like making you think that, uh, oh, well, I mean, what good are you in regards to spiritual warfare? And, you know, I mean, sort of like, you know, you're virtually out of the fight. What's the point even of going on? Satan wants you to believe that. And he wants you to believe that because he is terrified of you realising how frightened he is actually of you and then you can start putting your foot down. And actually being the threat to him that in reality you actually are. If you go to Ephesians chapter 1, and we've, we've already noted in this series that um, Ephesians really is the New Testament counterpart um, to um, the book of Joshua, as it were. You know, like uh, if, if Ephesians is the doctrine, as it were, um, then Joshua, we're seeing the doctrine acted out for us in history. Um, or to put it the other way I normally do, if in Ephesians we've got the script, Joshua is the movie. All right. And uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to start from 
reading from verse 15. Now, listen to this. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, uh, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and all authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, there, what Paul is saying is that Jesus, he's as high as you can get. He is top dog in every possible sense of the word. There is no power that is over him. Everything is under him. There is no name, whether in heaven or on earth, that is greater than his, because he is the ultimate authority in the entire universe. And therefore, because that's the position he's in, everything else including, of course, the principalities and powers, are completely under his feet. Now, chapter 2 and verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that give us? Jesus is the name above every name. Everything is under his feet. If everything is under his feet, where is Satan? Under Jesus' feet. If we have been raised up with Christ in heavenly places, and if we share that position with him, which we do by his grace as a free gift, where is Satan and the principalities and powers in relationship to us? Under our feet. Not will be one day. Now, Satan is under our feet. It's as simple as that. And Satan is worried and terrified and dreadfully concerned even of believers in defeat lest they realise that, start believing that it's true and therefore acting on it. And so basically the main thrust or the two main thrusts of Satan's warfare against us is one, straight temptation to sin, because that gets us out of fellowship with God. So that's the first prong of attack. But the second main prong of attack is to get us to think that he's under, that we're under his feet. It's deception. So there's temptation to sin, and then there's deceiving you to think that Satan's beating you. 
and to try and get you, if, if he can get you to think that he's dancing all over you, you'll lay down and let him. You see what I mean? But the moment you realise that's a lie, you'll be acting out the fact that the truth is that you are actually jumping up and down on him. Remember Jesus said that, you know, sort of I give you authority to tread over snakes and scorpions and all the power of the enemy. And that's, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about there. Paul here in Ephesians, that is his way of saying what Jesus said when he said that. I've given you authority to walk over all the power of the enemy. And so can you see, the truth of the matter here is that the Canaanites were more frightened of Israel than Israel could have ever been of the Canaanites. And Satan is more worried about you than you could ever be about him. But his only hope is to get you worrying about him. And then you'll give in to him. But if you realise you don't have to, then you won't. And he's got, he's not got a leg to stand on. He's under your feet. You're dancing up and down on him. And so can you see, the morale in Satan's army is very, very low. But can you see how great our morale ought to be? Because this is a battle that we've already won. We're not fighting for victory in spiritual warfare. We've got the victory. It's a mopping up operation. Often in wars, you get to the point where the war is won. One side has got the victory. But fighting may well go on in other places for, for quite a while afterwards. This was true in the Second World War. I believe actually in the late 60s, they actually found a Japanese soldier on one of the uh, Pacific Islands. And, uh, and it was a heck of a job trying to rescue him because he kept shooting at them. And he was convinced that they were still at war. You know, and that was over 20 years after the Second World War ended. But this, 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 this Japanese soldier, you know, who was discovered on this desert island, he'd been on his tod all, you know, for 20 odd years. And when they tried to rescue him, he tried to kill them because he didn't realise that the war was over. So, you see, a war can get to the point where the victory is won, but the battle may rage for quite a long time afterwards. But the outcome is inevitable, because the victory has been won. Now then, spiritual warfare for the church started raging when Jesus died on the cross, and it will continue to rage until the second coming. But the truth of the matter is, the outcome is a foregone conclusion, because in this battle, our side won 2,000 years ago. It was when Jesus died on the cross that he won. And we're on his side. Therefore, this battle is over, and Satan knows that, really. So he is frightened of us. We've got to stop being frightened of him. He is actually, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, they can destroy me. That's what he thinks. We've got to stop, you know, sort of like giving in to him as if he's great and powerful. Satan is not great and powerful. He is in himself, yes. Relative to an unbeliever, Satan is great and powerful, but you and I, we're raised up with Christ. We're above Satan. I mean, we're going to judge angels. We're above the angels. Satan's an angel. We're above him. He's under our feet. So we need to make sure that our morale um, is tremendously good and that we don't give in to the deception of Satan. He is frightened of us. Let us not be frightened of him. Now, so I want to digress a little bit here, just quickly. Um, just, just to home in, all right, that we're he seeing here the, the scenario of battle, of warfare, spiritual warfare, and seeing that we're soldiers. Now, it's absolutely true that as Christians and as part of this church, and 
as part of the wider church, you know, across the world and throughout time, all right, that as the church, we're a family. Of course we are. We're brothers and sisters. God is our Father. We're a family. And that's absolutely right and true. But also, we are an army. Now, there's a truth about family that can't be true of the army. And the truth is this. In a family, you can shirk and get away with it. Because that's just part of the privileges of being part of the family. So, relative to being children of God, we can shirk. But, if we're going to be soldiers, if we're going to realise that we're in an army, then you can't shirk. Soldiers can't shirk. That's out of the question. <coughs> we're an army. If you go to, to 2 Timothy, find 2 Timothy, And chapter 2. Two Timothy, chapter 2. And if you find verse 3. Now this is Paul talking to Timothy who was an elder of a church. But you know this doesn't just apply to leaders. This applies to all of us. And he says. Endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Not a shirky soldier, a good soldier. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. And then he says, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. Then he changes the picture again. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. So what he's saying, look, you're a soldier. Your main concern is what your commanding officer wants. Not civilian affairs. And this doesn't mean, you know, that I mean, obviously we have private lives. I mean, as Christians, we have affairs that we've got to look after family and, and, and careers and all that is quite right and proper. But what Paul's dealing with here is the fact that before anything else, we're soldiers. And therefore, our main concern is what the commanding officer wants. It's what Jesus wants. All right. Um, he says we should be athletes. And if you want to win the prize, you've got to train hard. You know, you can't lounge around all through the season and then go in a race and expect to win. You're going to come in last. And, you know, again, the farmer. I mean, it's no use not being a diligent farmer, all right, so you haven't sowed any seed, and then come harvest time, you go and say, oh, where's, where's my harvest? Where's my crops? We didn't plant any. And, of course, the truth of the matter is, in the Christian life, we're saved. Nothing can change that. But, my goodness, if we want to bear fruit, we've got to do a bit of seed planting. And if we want to be soldiers for Jesus and effective soldiers against Satan, then we've got to put the work and the commitment in and everything that's needed in order to be soldiers. Um, still in 2 Timothy, go to chapter 4 and uh, find verse 6. And um, this, this is Paul near the end of his life, expecting to be martyred very soon. And he says to Timothy, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. So Paul says, oh, I've, I've, I've been a, 
I, I was David out there with Goliath. I wasn't one of the other soldiers who was just like, you know, cowering behind a, a sand dune somewhere in the desert because there was rotten old Goliath bigger than me. He says, I've been a David. I was out there because the Lord God was with me. He says, I fought the good fight. He says, I finished the race. He said, I didn't shirk. I didn't give up halfway through. I finished the race. And he says, I have kept the faith. So there's Paul saying, I kept going. I put everything into it that was needed in order to be effective. That's the same for you and I. Go back to Ephesians and find chapter 6. Verse 10, the main, you know, sort of thing about spiritual warfare in Ephesians. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So you've got to work at it. If you don't work at it, Satan will have you. He'll have you convinced that he's in charge. He'll have you living like you've got to be his doormat. See, it, it, it takes effort in the Lord to, you know, to, to, to assert yourself over Satan, but, but you must. He says, for our struggle, this is active, struggle, this is not passive. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's battle, this is war. Um, it's active. And it's, it's, it's a, a constant denying of self, because that's what soldiers have to do. Soldiers at war all the time realise that there are many completely legitimate things. That because they're soldiers and because they're at war, they're not maybe going to be free to indulge in these perfectly legitimate things any time they want. Can you see what I mean? They know that they've got a battle to fight. And it's the same for you and I, as Christians. I mean, there are a million legitimate things that we could, you know, all our spare time could be taken up with. All right? But if we want to be soldiers, then a lot of our spare time, I'm not saying all of it, but a lot of our spare time, by spare time I mean outside of our working hours when you've got no choice about what you're doing. But then a lot of our um, sort of spare time is given to, as it were, serving the Lord. You know, to having a prayer life, um, getting to know the Bible, getting teaching, having fellowship with each other, serving people, finding out how you can use your time to bless other people. These are all the disciplines, and if we're going to be soldiers, then that's what we've got to do. So yeah, sure, we're a family. I guess in some ways it's good to know that if you shirk, you're still a family. Well, fine, but that's not what we want. We don't want the bare minimum. We're not looking for the lowest common denominator upon which we can say we're Christians. We're soldiers, and so therefore, to that level, there can't be any shirking at all. So, you can call yourself a brother and be a lackadaisical Christian, no problem. But if you're a lackadaisical Christian, you can't call yourself a soldier. Then you see what I'm getting at there. Spiritual warfare takes real commitment. Well, let's, let's go back now to the, 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 the two spies. And um, back in, in, in Joshua... And chapter 2 in verse 25, sorry, in, in verse 24, they've come back now. They said to Joshua, 
the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Now, do you remember in, um, when we did chapter 1, we saw that what God said to Joshua was, I will give you every place where you set your feet, just as I promised Moses. God has said to Joshua, it's yours, it's there for the taking, the land is already yours. And now the spies come back and they're saying, the land is already ours. And my goodness, the Lord proved this to us because all the people are absolutely terrified of us. And what's happened is that these spies, they've come back and they are seeing things from God's perspective before the battle takes place. Now, the first battle in the Promised Land is going to be the Battle of Jericho, which we'll get onto in later talks. So the first battle is yet to actually come. But can you see here that before the battle is enjoined, that these guys, they are seeing the battle from God's perspective. And they are seeing that the battle is already over, that they've already won. And that is what faith is. It's seeing things from the same perspective that God sees things. It's ultimately believing his word. If you go to Deuteronomy in chapter 29, there's um, a real sort of like ace little verse that tends to get missed. Deuteronomy 29 and find verse 29. And listen to this, because this is a principle The secret things belong to the Lord our God. You don't even know about them, they're secret. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Now, I don't know if you can see what that is saying there. It's simply this. What God has revealed to you is yours. It's a possession that in his time, by faith, you'll come into. I don't like jargon, but every now and then, I can't escape it. And the way that I think of this, and from my own experience, as the Lord has dealt with me, is that I use the phrase that this is seeing things in your spirit. Now that is horrible charismatic jargon and I don't like it, but I can't think of a better way to say it. All I can say is that that is true. There is a time when you see something in your spirit. You may understand it from the Bible, and that's good, the truth of God's word goes in, but something happens and you get revelation of it. And it's a revelation of it that activates it in your own life. So it's no longer just a theory. Now it's becoming actual experience. Um, if, if you go to Ephesians, again, chapter 1, all the time flitting between Joshua and Ephesians because they're kind of, um, you know, sort of parallel books. And uh, if Ephesians 1, and find verse, verse 17. And um, we noted this in an earlier talk, didn't we? The way that in Ephesians, you know, Paul kind of lays out, as it were, the theory 
and uh, then he prays that you get a revelation of it, and then he, he shows you how to live in the light of it, you know, things like wives submit to your husbands, husband love your wives, you know, uh, be obedient to your boss at work, or, you know, all, all that sort of thing, that's, that's the practical issues that it boils down to, and the bit that we're interested in now is, is the bit where, right, you've got the theory, all right, and then Paul talks about revelation, seeing it in your spirit. And in verse 17, and we've already read this tonight, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you may know him better. This is knowing the truth, but not just in a theoretical way, but in a way that it becomes your experience. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, blah, 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 blah. But can you see, that's exactly, uh, that's what I'm meaning by seeing something in your spirit. And that this is the way God works, the truth, and then the Holy Spirit giving us a revelation of that truth. And so it's a sense that the secret to spiritual warfare, and indeed to the Christian life in general, is that it's seeing what's true in the heavenlies as opposed to the half-truth of what you see in the natural. Now, I say the half-truth of what you see in the natural because the natural, you can only see things physically. The other bit of the universe, what's going on in the heavenlies, which is just as real as the physical universe we see and feel and touch and smell and taste, the other half of the story you can't see. You believe that by faith, because it's what God has told us. But if you only believe in the natural, okay, well then, you know, you're only seeing half the story. And, and half the story, half the truth is a lie. The truth is what's going on in the heavenlies. I mean, what is the truth in the heavenlies? God loves you. What's your experience now? It seems that God doesn't love you and he's making everything go wrong. Well, what are you going to believe? That half the truth or the truth? Because God's word says that he loves you. Can you see? This is the key. Believing what's true in the heavenlies rather than just looking at the natural and believing that half a truth which is tantamount to it being a lie. I've, I've told you in, 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 in the past of the profound difference that it made to my Christian life, when I actually saw my oneness with Jesus when he died on the cross. I mean, you know, sort of like, I mean, after years of struggling with the doctrine, I mean, believing it and accepting it and knowing the theory, came a time when, and you know, it's different for different people, but you know, but the Lord showed that to me. He gave me revelation of something, but whereas I knew it was true, the night came, and I'll never forget it, when I got revelation of it, and then I began to experience it as being true. Can you see, rather than a theory that I was all reaching out to and trying to make it true, suddenly, because of a revelation, it, it wasn't just that I knew it was true, I was then living as if it was true. It was as if the revelation activated the power of it in my life for it to, to, to really start to happen. And that changed me. As, as profoundly as when I became a Christian changed me, then that revelation changed me just as profoundly as a disciple. And, and so these guys, they come back and they say, the land is ours. And that is exactly what God had told Joshua. And this is what faith is. It's believing what God says. And then praying for revelation of it. 
from the Holy Spirit so that we know that it's true and then we live in the light of that truth rather than living in the light of the half the story of what's going on down here and the natural world and experience that we see with our eyes. If you go to uh, Two Kings, there's um, a marvellous story that um, illustrates this in the Old Testament. This is Elisha. Find Two Kings, chapter 6, and uh, start reading from verse 8. Two Kings, chapter 6. Um, now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I'll set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God, this is Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again Elisha warned the king so that he was on guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? So the king of Aram, every time he attacks Israel, the, you know, the Israeli army is there on the border. It doesn't matter what direction he comes from, the army is waiting for him. And so the king's thinking, there's a spy. There's a spy. One of my close you know, cohorts here is giving information to Israel. They know about all my attacks. And then verse 12, None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his men, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. He says, there's the spy and he's not even here because God is telling Elisha what we're planning and Elisha is telling the Israelite king. So therefore, whenever we attack, they're waiting for us. So Elisha is the problem. Go and find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servants of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots has surrounded the city. Oh my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. And what you've got here is that the king of Aram says, Right, go and get Elisha, I want him. You know, they find out he's in Dothan. So he sends his army and he surrounds Dothan. So the army, the Aramaic, you know, the Aramean army surrounds Dothan. Now Elisha has got a servant, all right, you know, young lad. And in the morning, this young lad, he gets up and he goes out of the hut and has a little wander around. And he sees the Aramean army surrounding the town. And of course, his, his reaction is, is fear. Because he knew that they'd come to get them. And I mean, they, he knew that they'd come for Elisha. He was Elisha's servant. Elisha was going to get the chop, so was he. He was not a happy believer at that point, right? 
And so he rushes in, oh, Elisha, Elisha, you know, panic, panic, flat, flat, all right. Elisha meanders, gets up, you know, sort of meanders out. And he says, Lord, open the young man's eyes. Because Elisha was seeing something that this young man wasn't. And suddenly, this young man, he looked again. And he saw the Aramean army completely surrounding them. That's what he saw before. That hadn't changed. But that was only half the story. Now, as he looked beyond the Aramean army, he saw the angelic army surrounding the Aramean army. And now he gets revelation of the other half of the story, so now he's got the truth. And the truth of the matter was not, as he was fearing, that the enemy was going to get the upper hand. That looks like the truth in the natural, but the actual truth, now that he's seeing the whole story, was that God had actually used him and Elisha as bait. So the enemy had surrounded them. They were the bait. And now that the enemy had surrounded them, God surrounded the enemy and dealt with them. Can you see what I mean? It was simply the Lord's way of drawing the enemy into a trap and then closing on him. And we saw in an earlier talk, how does God beat Satan? By outwitting him at every every move. You know, Satan again and again, he's ready to call checkmate and then Lord comes up with the move that checkmates him. And so, whereas, can you see, this young man was panicked, panicked, because he was only seeing half the story. Elisha was called as a cucumber because he saw the whole story, and faith is seeing the whole picture, isn't it? And I always think of, of, of this story, and therefore spiritual warfare, just like Tom and Jerry. So, any time that you want to get revelation about spiritual warfare, turn to the scripture and then think about Tom and Jerry. Because, of course, Tom and Jerry revolves all the time, doesn't it, around the fact that Tom is after Jerry. So Jerry's the mouse, very much the underdog, all right? Um, Tom is the cat, so you'd expect Tom to win. It very often looks like Tom's going to win, doesn't it? But you'll recall that very often, just as it looks like Jerry is about to have his chips and that Tom is there waiting to strike, who should appear but one Butch the dog? Who then sorts Tom out with all the fervour and power that Tom had planned to sort Jerry out with? And can you see it's a bit like that? In spiritual warfare, you're Jerry. You're a little mouse, and it feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? Does it ever feel like God's playing cat and mouse with you? Well, that's right, he is. You're the mouse, all right. Tom is Satan, that's spiritual warfare. But who's Butch the dog? That's Jesus. And he's just using you as the bait to get Tom where Butch wants him. And that's exactly what happened here in the story of Elisha. The young man looks out, oh, we're finished, he thinks. The truth of the matter is, the army of the enemy surrounded Elisha, 
and then the army of God surrounded the enemy. And that is the truth. In the Psalms we're told that the angels encamp around them that fear him. Now question, do you or do you not believe that each one of us here are surrounded by angels? Wherever we go, we are surrounded by angels. Father lives in us, Jesus lives in us, the Holy Spirit lives in us. Angels do not live in us. They surround us. They're our front guard and our rear guard and our side guard. They're the impact bars, if you like. Okay, um, And that is the truth. And we either decide to believe it, in which case Satan's on the run, or we give in to Satan's deceptions and he immobilizes us because we think that it isn't the truth and that Satan's got the upper hand. So the point is, the next time you feel like Jerry, really vulnerable, and it looks like Tom's got you, and it feels like God's, where is God? It's like he's playing cosmic cat and mouse with me. Now you know the truth. Believe you me, at just the right time, and in whatever form it takes, you might not even recognise it when it happens, but the truth is that Butch the dog will be there at just the right moment to do whatever it is he planned. <coughs> You're back to faith, trusting the Lord. If you trust the Lord, Satan is on the run in your life. Right, now let's, let's now move, move on to, um, to Rahab. We've seen the spies and everything that that teaches us. Let's, let's have a look at Rahab. And um, because in, in Rahab, who, like, you know, protected the spies, in Rahab we, we, we have a picture of, um, of someone being saved from God's judgment to come. So in Rahab we have a picture, really, of someone becoming a Christian. And let's actually just read um, verse 11 to 13 just to, to remind ourselves. And she, she's saying, when we heard of it, our hearts sank. I know you come across the Red Sea. Everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God in heaven above is God on heaven above and on the earth below. She's getting a rev She's acknowledging that, that, that Jesus is Lord. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you'll spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from, from death. So, do you remember on the day of Pentecost when you know, sort of Peter preached to the crowd, and, you know, and then the crowd said, what must we do to be saved? And, and, and Rahab is now absolutely you know, in that position now. But, but just, just notice what she's doing here. She acknowledges God is God. She says, the Lord your God is God of heaven and earth. So she's acknowledging that God is God. In that, she's bowing down to him as the creature before her creator. But also, she's crying out for mercy. She's pleading with them. She, she's saying, spare us. Save us from the judgment to come. She's pleading for mercy. So we see two elements here in Rahab. We see her acknowledgement of who God is and that he is God, and secondly, conviction of sin and crying out for mercy. I've often said to you before, that night I became a Christian, I knew two things instantly out of the blue that I had never known before in my life. I knew how wonderful Jesus was and I knew how sinful I was. And that's exactly what we've got here. 
That is what it means fundamentally to become a Christian. This is, I put it to you, a far cry from so much evangelism today of the kind of put your hand up to receive Jesus with all the benefits that he'll bring you type evangelism that goes on. That's, that's not what I see in the scripture. I do not see in the Bible that evangelism is trying to entice people to become Christians because of all the good things that Jesus is going to do for them and Jesus is going to give to them. And this kind of getting them in at all costs, you know, whatever the cost, get them to be born again. That is not what you find in the Bible at all. If you go to um, Acts, have a quick flick through of evangelism as done by the early church. Right, Acts chapter 2. And... Um, this is just, just the end of uh, Peter preaching at Pentecost, the bit I referred to. This is the end of what he's saying. He says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified. Powerful stuff there. Both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they were cut to the heart because the Holy Spirit was using the content of what Peter was preaching. Peter wasn't doing everything he could to get and put their hands up and come to Jesus. He was telling them that they were responsible for his murder. Um, and they said to Peter, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised. First thing, repent. This is often the one bit you don't get in evangelism today. It was the first bit from the early church. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. So that, that's, that's straight to the bone there, isn't it? Go to chapter 3. And this is Peter again, and verse 12, this is just after they've, they, they've healed someone, um, and, and Peter's preaching. He says, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, have glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And then just go to verse 26, when he sums up, uh, when, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, I Israel, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. How like the evangelism we hear today is this? Go to chapter 7. This is Stephen just before he was um, stoned to death. And this is just the end of um, his preaching. He says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. And then they were so angry with him, they killed him. I mean, I'm just, just trying to show you that this is, this is slightly different from some of the rather wishy-washy get-people-in-at-any-cost that, we, um, that we, we, we tend to get today. Um, still in Acts 16, chapter 16, verse 29 and 30. Um, now this is the Philippian jailer. And um, 
the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now the point is, he's saying, what must we do to be saved? He's already been witnessed to by Paul. And in saying, what must I do to be saved? It is clearly, though it's not recorded here, that Paul had already communicated to him that he needed to be saved from something. What is the something? The lake of fire, which is the consequences of being a sinner. You know, I mean, you may get, you know, sometimes the terminology in evangelism about being saved, but how often do people say what it is we need to be saved from? And, and Rahab, she cried out for mercy. And uh, just Acts, Acts 17, last one here, and uh, ver, uh, verse 30, and this is Paul in Athens, and um, he says, Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. The, the push behind much evangelism that certainly I, I, I've tended to experience since I've become a Christian is that in much evangelism that I've seen um, is that the push behind it is inviting people to Jesus. Inviting them to come to Jesus. You'll not find that in the Bible. You find people commanded to repent and bow down before him. And, and, and this is what we're seeing um, in, in Rahab. Now, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying go OTT, not over the top. We're not saying that evangelism is only that aspect of it, but I'm saying evangelism without that aspect of it is not complete evangelism. And, uh, you know, my goodness, we've got to make sure that, um, you know, sort of like uh, in, in, in any evangelism that we're involved with, that we're not just going for easy converts. That's not, we're commanded by Jesus to make disciples, you know, to, to you know, people so that they observe all that he's taught us. You know, not, not come to Jesus and everything will be lovely and he'll bless you and, you know, and sort of like he'll, he'll increase your quality of life. Well, yes, all that, of course, is true. But uh, it's repent and come to Jesus. He's, he's your God. And in Rahab, we see this. Her, her bowing down before the Lord God as God of heaven and earth and then crying out for mercy because she knew that judgment was, was coming on her. And, um, and then what they do is she, um, they give her this, this scarlet cord and they say, right, okay, well, here's the way to be saved, they say, in effect. They say, if you want to be saved, right, you're crying out for mercy, judgment, you know, Israel's going to descend on Jericho and destroy it. If you want to be saved from the judgment that's coming, you've got to hang a scarlet cord out of your window. And if you hang a cord, a scarlet cord, out of your window, and they, they gave her one, then anyone who's in your home will be spared in that judgment, all right? Anyone else in the room with you, so obviously I expected her that she'd go and tell the good news to other people and all her family, stuff like that. They say, hang the scarlet cord out, and when the judgment comes, anyone in your room, they'll be passed over. The judgment won't touch them. But if anyone goes outside of the room, they will be touched. All right. Now, can you see that this scarlet cord, what does it represent? This is the blood of Jesus. 
they're giving her her own personal Passover. What happened at Passover, the night that Israel was delivered from Egypt? What happened was they put the blood of the lamb on over the doors of their houses. And anyone who was in that house was covered by the blood and the angel of death passed them over. But anyone who wasn't in the house wasn't covered by the blood and the angel of death got them. So what's it saying here? It's a picture that if we're covered by the blood of Jesus, if we're believers, the judgment will pass over us. She's getting her own personal Passover, symbolised by the scarlet cord. And in Isaiah 1 verse 18, through Isaiah, God says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Now, isn't this incredible? Scarlet is the colour of two things. It's the colour of sin and it's the colour of blood. It's therefore the colour of Jesus' blood. And what that tells us is that Jesus' blood is sin-covered. But the effect it has is that it produces whiteness where the sin was. And in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, Paul says, He became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So can you see, Jesus became sin. He became scarlet, he shed his blood, so that we could become white. Naturally, he was white, we were scarlet. He became scarlet, shed his scarlet blood, so that we could become white. He became our sin, so that we could then become his righteousness. And that's the picture of this scarlet thread. She's putting her faith in Jesus. She's putting her faith in the one who is to come. That is how we're saved, simply believing in Jesus, being covered by his blood. And isn't it absolutely brilliant here? that the symbolism goes even further. What was Rahab? How did she earn her keep? She was a prostitute. And what is like a traditional phrase that we put on women of that ilk? That they're scarlet women. And what does white signify in regards to a female? The whiteness of virginity, hence a white wedding. Can you see that here was a scarlet woman being made white because of the scarlet thread? The blood of Jesus was the colour of her sin. It covered her and she became the colour of Jesus. She became whiter than snow. Isn't that absolutely incredible? But notice that in her entering this salvation, she was putting her faith in the Lord. But in doing so, the mere fact that she was putting her faith in the Lord demanded of her that she was risking her life because she was shielding two spies. What she was doing is she was committing treason. She was being absolutely unfaithful, as it were, to her country, Jericho, because each city was like an independent state. She was committing treason by... Uh, working with a foreign power that was going to take over. Now, the, when you and I became Christians, we committed treason. Because we committed treason in the kingdom of darkness, and we went on the side of another kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. 
And that's what she's doing. She's committing treason. And if she'd been caught, she'd have been killed. So this faith led her to protect the two spies and therefore risk losing her own life. So her faith immediately led her to self-denying obedience. Go to Hebrews, and in Hebrews chapter 11, read verse 3. Uh, sorry, Hebrews 11 verse 31, not, not verse 3. And this is like the, the, the gallery of faith, looking back on all the believers in the Old Testament who have faith. And the writer says, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And then you remember the words of Jesus. And these are the words that people need to hear before they become Christians. Or it doesn't matter whether they hear the words, but they need to hear the truth of it. Jesus says, unless someone will deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me, they cannot be my disciple. And that is exactly what Rahab did. That is exactly what faith is. Faith is that denying yourself, picking up the cross and following Jesus. Putting your trust in him regardless of what the cost is. And if you go to James, because old Rahab, she gets mentioned quite a bit. Go to James chapter 2 and find verse 20. And um, James says this, he says, You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? He's saying, right, you're saved. Right, show me it then. Let's, let's see your faith working. He says, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The faith that gets credited as righteousness leads to obedience. Uh, he was called God's friend. So you see, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And so you can see that this is back to the gospel that we preach. It's calling people to total commitment. It's not calling them to a kind of a believe and, and everything's going to be great. It's calling them to a self-denying faith and discipleship that leads to actions, that leads to a, a totally new life lived in submission to the Lord. And James here is saying, look at Rahab. Her faith cost her. That's real faith. It proved itself. It brought forth fruit. And that is, is, is so important. And there's something else I want to show you about this woman. And if you go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, this is one of those occasions why, well, where you're going to know why all those boring genealogies are there. And in Matthew 1 and verse 5, we have 
Jesus's genealogy and um, right and if you just look at verse 5 and it says and this is, this is tracing Jesus's ancestry right back to Abraham all right Salmon the father of Boaz now I've always thought there was something fishy about that <laughs> yeah Salmon the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab you see Rahab here she's becoming a believer isn't she here she was a Gentile prostitute she's becoming a believer she married a Jew so that after the invasion of Jericho when Jericho fell she obviously went along with the Israelites she fell in love she married into the Israelites she became a proselyte alright and uh, she married a Jew and she ended up being the great 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 and put a little nth degree there alright great 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 says quite a few of them grandmother of Jesus see she brought forth Jesus her faith resulted in her producing Jesus which genetically she did a little bit same with us. Our faith is going to produce Jesus in our lives. People are going to see Jesus. But isn't that incredible that she ended up as one of Jesus's great, 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 great grandmothers? And um, and just end up on, on this note to remind ourselves and just home in on the fact that she was a prostitute. Isn't that lovely? Not that she was a prostitute, but that the Lord could do this with a prostitute. It didn't matter that she was a prostitute. Given that she came to the Lord, it didn't matter that she was a prostitute. She was a sinner. Prostitution was merely one of the ways that her sin manifested itself. Our sin manifests itself in different ways in different people. But it's good to remember that Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. Cain's called the sinners. And that Jesus had a very special rapport with women of ill repute. And I think it's lovely that Jesus had a special rapport with women of ill repute. One of the women who was closer to Jesus than anyone else was Mary Magdalene. And she had been a woman of ill repute. And don't you think it's so lovely that when Jesus rose again from the dead, the first person he physically revealed himself to was a woman who'd been a prostitute. He came to call sinners, not the righteous. And that leads us no room at all for self-righteousness in our lives. Not in the slightest. And if the Lord were to bring notorious prostitutes across our path, well, let us not be shocked at the thought of, of, of having prostitutes here. We might have to put the guard up according to maybe how they're dressed or anything like that, but my goodness, that would be our problem. You know, sort of Jesus didn't kind of approach prostitutes with a big, you know, like send his personal secretary on ahead to them, well, I will meet with you, but could you please fulfil these conditions first? Jesus was approachable by absolutely anyone. And I just think it's so marvellous, you know, of uh, this, this story of, of Rahab. So, 
the spies have reported back, they've come back and they've said to Joshua and the people, Joshua, when God spoke to you and you passed it on to us, we've been and had a look, it's exactly as you told us God told you. It's ours, let's go get it. We'll carry on next time.